Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. All right, and welcome back to Micromobility. How are you doing today, Horace? Where are you? Hey, I'm in San Francisco. I just came back from the the Apple iPhone event here in uh, September uh, 2019. We had the launch of the iPhone 11 and the 11 Pro. Triple cameras. Triple cameras on the phones or the Pros and two double cameras on the regular iPhone uh, 11. Plus, we had the watch that has it always on display. That was the big news for me. Yeah, interesting. So when I come to San Francisco, whether it's for Apple events or otherwise, I used to rent a car. And, you know, I had to put up with the car problem because everything in, in the Bay Area is far apart. You know, you've got about 50 miles between San Jose or the bottom of the Bay and San Francisco. And anything on the East Bay, it's far from anything. But since I got an e-bike... I stopped doing that. Mm-hmm. So effectively for me, the e-bike does replace the car. Nice. Well, look, I wanted to chat through this cost of a mile blog post that you recently put up. I think, you know, it's very interesting to read through it, but I'd really love to just have you kind of take us through your thinking and then for me to kind of probe and ask some questions as we go. Would you be open to that? Yes, that's a good idea. So what this began with is that the Department of Transportation of the City of New York publishes a report every year and it's a a kind of a state of the union state of the city whatever report on transportation and it's a pdf file it's got a bunch of charts and it's got a bunch of analysis for example they summarize things like well what is the average speed of traffic in every part of the city you know what's the average speed of a bus for example what is the average speed of taxis And it's kind of nice to see these sample data. And one of the tables that caught my attention back in 2016 report, which covered the year 2015, was a table that showed taxi rides versus city bikes. City with an I is the bike share system that exists in New York since 2013. It's a dock system. It's run by Motivate, now owned by Lyft. And that table was giving me very interesting information about for every half mile increment, it gave speed. So short trips, medium trips, long trips, right? Sure. It gave a speed and then it gave the number of rides that were within the sampling period, which I think was October of 2015. And then it gave a a cost. In In other words, what did the passenger pay? And so you end up with this exact kind of data I'm looking for, which is, first of all, a histogram, which is showing that what is the most popular distance traveled in half-mile bin sizes. Secondly, it gives me a cost and a time figure, which allows me to compare the speeds of two different modes. So I can compare the distance distribution, the speed distribution, and the cost distribution And I thought this was really powerful stuff because you can argue then, hey, city bike is faster than taxis. In fact, in the borough of Manhattan, in particular, what's called the Midtown Core, Mm -hmm. which is what they were sampling, 
it was clear that city bikes were faster than taxis. And that's because taxis are sitting in traffic more, obviously, and the average speed in that particular part of New York is really slow. I mean, in the daytime, it's starting to come down to like five miles an hour. And so a bike, even though these are not particularly fast bikes, you know, they're these kind of clunky city bikes, they were still faster than taking the taxi. So this is how it started. For the first micromobility conference, I presented the data which showed how city bike was faster and cheaper per mile Yes. when you look at the two modes next to each other. And this is just standard bikes, right? This isn't the e-bike version of the city bike. Right, right, because this is 2015, so they, they didn't have them yet. Yeah. And so I put that chart together which showed speed versus cost. Usually, like in economics, you have a, a cost versus performance graph. Sure. And usually the higher the performance, the higher the cost. You tend to see a curve which says, well, if you want, let's say, a faster car or faster ride, you pay more. But in this case, you actually you pay less. So it was an inverted you know, performance cost equation for in the particular case of bikes versus a taxi. The other thing is that the taxi, depending on the trip length, your cost would change quite a bit per mile. And that is because very short trips are very expensive, like $18 a mile. When you're doing half a mile, for example, if you're paying uh, 6 to $8, let's say, for that trip, which is not unusual in New York, mm-hmm. and you're only traveling half a mile, you know, the, the, per mile, it's double that, right? So you were seeing very, very high costs in Manhattan for taxi rides that were very short. But as you got closer to two, three miles, you would see the curve start to, you know, increase in speed and then decrease in cost. Don't forget that a, a taxi ride, you have an initial cost, which is paid as soon as you get in the car and the meter's switched on. And so that gets amortized over more more miles and more minutes, right? So this isn't particularly uh, a big insight, but the point about city bikes is that they moved around a lot less. In other words, regardless of the distance you took, it's kind of like you had almost like a flat rate, so per mile. And this has to do also because the you know it's more of a subscription service in New York, and so you're you're paying. If you go beyond a certain time, you get some increased costs, but otherwise it's more or less the same no matter how far you go. Right. Anyway, I put this together and it was a cool graph like two years ago. And so I thought I'd revisit that because I just saw there's a 2019 report. Sure. So I pulled in the report and see if they have updated this information. And sure enough, they did. So now we can sort of compare. By the way, the 19 report covers 2018. So you have 15 and 18 both have data. And so I thought I'd put that up and and see how things may have changed. With an interesting twist in that they began also to sample Brooklyn and Queens area, which is another part of New York, not the Midtown core. So suddenly I I don't have just two data sets, I have three data sets. Sure. And now we can sort of see whether, you know, a, a more sparsely populated area or, you know, a more typical outer borough area would behave differently. And so anyway... Check the, the graph that's now on micromobility.io blog, and then you can see the exact thing. Yeah, I'll link to it on the show notes. I think, I guess the part here, right, is like, because all of these things, they kind of make sense to me. But if you were to explain it to a lay person, like the insight out of this graph that I understand is that you're looking at things where you see people riding bikes are going just as fast as taxis, if not faster, and it costs about one-fourth. Yep, 25%. Right, it's about 25% of the cost. 
So that's kind of paradoxical, isn't it, that you pay less to get more? Mm. And of course, when I posted this initially, an economist uh, noted that, well, people aren't just paying for performance as you define it. They might be paying for comfort and they might be paying for not uh, having to ride a bike, which is fine. You know, there are all, all kinds of reasons. But if you're paying for miles, if you're paying for trips, it is the quantity that you want to pay attention to is exactly what's being presented there. But this point of the cost of a mile, first of all, we're, we're seeing how different modes affect that. We're also seeing how different parts of the city affect that. I would say also that the salient question for cost of the mile is also in automobile miles for a personal automobile, there is a kind of a consensus of what that is. And it's about, this is what the Internal Revenue Service of the United States, Mm -hmm. which is a tax authority for those of you not in the United States, the famous IRS, puts a value on a mile based on what you can deduct if you use your motor vehicle, your personal vehicle for business. Let's say you have a small business or you have some personal income. And if you're driving your own car, you can deduct 53 cents a mile. This might be dated to some dates, you know, like in the past. They may have changed and probably it rises with inflation. But it's in that ballpark, 53 cents a mile. Sure. Now, important to note here, a couple of things. One, that is a lot lower than either city bike or taxi in New York City, exactly. which obviously it would be. But, you know, this is the average for the whole United States trying to say, well, whether you're in, you know, in the middle of the countryside or you're in an urban environment, whether you have a pickup truck or you have a, you know, an economy car or you have an electric car, the IRS pretty much just averages that out to 53 cents. So it's an interesting point to say, okay, as far as the government is concerned, a mile costs 53 cents and the consumer pays 53 cents. But here's my point. Okay, we have all the data I had on cost per mile, the IRS, the city of New York in in terms of taxis and city bike and in the boroughs of Manhattan and in the boroughs of Queens and Brooklyn. So we're having a lot of data and I'm sure there's much more out there. I don't know that would sort of give us a, a cost curve per mile. So I started this analysis on the basis that saying, hey, wouldn't it be great to prove that micromobility is so much cheaper on the per mile basis than anything else? Well, to be fair, in the world of on-demand, so let's assume you threw in Lyft and Uber. If you did the same work as New York did on taxis and you try to go worldwide and you go all these cities, yes, those would be pretty expensive, maybe cheaper than taxis, but certainly a lot more expensive than bikes. And by the way, you throw in scooters, you throw in e-bikes, you throw in free-floating. They would be great. Imagine you had a big database of cost per mile for every city and every mode and in all of these different variations. And that would have been like a great article just to say, wow, look at all this, the big graph, the big scatter plot sure. of cost per mile. But as I was writing it, as I'm compiling it, as I'm trying to come to a conclusion of it, I realized that as many analysts get target fixation, so they're they're focused on that thing and they're not seeing the bigger picture, they lose their peripheral vision. What I realized is that, hey, wait a minute, but isn't the logic of cost per mile flawed as a way of really thinking about this? This isn't how people think, first of all, about value of transport. They also, you know, we we don't buy things in the mile bins and so on. 
we prepay for the optionality of transport in the case of cars. And then when you get the bill from Uber, you're not going to go divided by the distance traveled. You're saying, well, did it save me time? Was this a fare that makes sense to me somehow? Completely. So yep. my point was that this is a sort of an analytical exercise. It might be convincing or persuasive that, you know, some things are cheaper than others. But the fundamental question should be, what is a better metric for delivering convenience or delivering a value to the consumer? And I said, and this is kind of the, the conclusion, the purpose of micromobility might be that we move away from thinking about cost per mile overall, like the way IRS and they do. Because in, in the automobility world, you, you boil down this expense to that number. But in micromobility, we should be thinking about the creation of value. We should be thinking about the creation of new opportunities from that ride taken. And I think that should be the way it's seen. Just to frame a little bit differently this point. Yeah, I don't fully get that. Let me try it this way. When you think about communication, communication early on was measured by dollars per minute. You know, I remember when I was a kid, this was true that calling long distance or internationally was super expensive. And even today, I think if you're roaming, you're going to see these types of massive fares for making calls and maybe even like paying for a message. And I remember when SMS was new and you were paying on a per message basis, somebody calculated that that is the most extortionate cost for communication that has ever been invented because there are so few characters and you're paying like 25 cents to send 150 characters or something like that, which was like ridiculously expensive. Yeah. But that's how people thought for a long, long time. In fact, they thought about dollars per minute. And in the data world, it was dollars per megabyte. Mm -hmm. For decades, that was the standard way of valuing communication networks. And the point about going to an internet economy and the cost of communications has gone down so exponentially, so much so that a marginal bit of data or a marginal minute of calls is zero. And the logic then has moved to prepaying or paying a subscription overall to give you unlimited access. Sure. And then thinking about what are the services, and this is called on over-the-top services. So the network operators charge this base rate, but they really want to participate in this over-the-top. So to this point, Apple's event, for example, has TV and games and news and music as over-the-top services that are sitting on top of either the purchase of the phone, the purchase of the network contract that gives you internet access, all of these things on top are where the interest is long term. So in the transportation world, in the cost per mile thinking is that we're still in that baseband, in that part of the you know economic equation that is not doing the job that consumers want done. That is your utility. It is not the sort of, why am I making the call? I'm making the call because I want to get in touch with someone. I'm making the call because I'm trying to get a job or communicate effectively something to someone and that does not get captured so that's where we need to go to transportation we need to see people paying for the outcome of their transport not the actual 
kilograms transported. So the way that I hear you talking about this, it makes it, you know, you refer to it in the in the article there, but it's really this idea of like, hey, we're going to end up with subscriptions and it'll be bundling effectively. Like we rebundle all these things together. And like we've been talking about that already on the podcast that Uber, for example, is looking at bundling. They'll put jump rides in and you get for $30 a month, 30 minutes a day free on the bikes or on the scooters. And that that was how you would think about it because you just say, yeah, I'm going to have, I'm going to consume that amount. And if I consume over it, then I'll pay, obviously. And that makes sense to me. I mean, the part that I'm really curious about is I haven't seen any data on e-bike private ownership or scooter private ownership that would actually look at it and say, if you were to take, you know, that 53 cents that the the IRS talks about, what would be the equivalent of saying, I'm going to commute on my e-bike or I'm going to commute on a scooter or pair it with a train or something like this? That to me is like the calculations that I am having and the conversations I'm having, right? Oh, absolutely. So that's private public or on demand you're not paying for the depreciation on the scooter the energy in terms of kilowatt hours the wear and tear all those things are minuscule compared to the service costs so a scooter probably costs five dollars a day to be charged and repositioned and that's done because someone has to go out and do it sure you know that's the charging what actually that implies then is that you're paying for accessibility to the vehicle so the vehicle is where you want it when you want it and there's probably excess numbers of these things around so that they're available to people as on demand as possible so the difference with a personal vehicle is This is very important. When you have your personal scooter, you have access to it, but only if you take it with you everywhere you need to go. So it's like saying, I have a great camera, but I don't take it with me, so I don't get to shoot pictures. And this is why the phrase in phone business is that the best camera is the one you have with you which is why the camera in your phone became the most popular camera and then eventually became the best camera. So my point about scooters is this, or personal versus shared mobility, is that when you have it yourself, it feels like, oh, it's so much cheaper per mile, but it's less accessible because that means you have to bring it with you everywhere. And to the extent that a scooter is portable, then yes, it will be with you more often than let's say your personal bike, which ends up sitting in the garage, and you don't really ride it that often. So the utilization of your personal vehicle goes down to like, you know, two, three days a year, whereas maybe a scooter goes a little bit higher. But the shared vehicle, and this is the whole economics, and this is the deep thought of of micromobility, is that shared on-demand mobility is expensive, but you're paying for access. Sure. You're paying for having it all the time, whenever you need it. And that's worth a lot. That's what all that money goes into, all the balancing and charging and capital cost of the network. That, to me, is worth it, though, because access in transportation is everything, right? The economics of access. David Levinson is a professor, yeah, who wrote about this. Well, I mean, I hear you. My background's at Uber. Of course I understand this. You know, you want to have access to the thing. And yet, at the same time, people still own cars. And, you know, we had the CEO of Boosted on it. And he's like, look, 90% of this market's going to be owned. People still want to have a scooter. And I, I think about it and I'm like, I want a scooter. I have shared scooters outside my house and I still want to have my own one. I disagree. I'll use it when I do <laughs> because I'm going to go into town and I don't want to have to think about having my own scooter when I go out for a drink. But for the majority of the time, I'll use my own one and I'll only purchase that small ride when I need it on a shared system. I wouldn't go to having a shared system all the time. 
Well, I would say 80-20 rule applies. And let me first, before I get to that, let me just point out why the car feels different. The car feels different in terms of access because we've made it possible for you to take it with you everywhere. That is a critical thing. Remember we all the conversation about parking and infrastructure? Oh, absolutely. That has been subsidized. Yeah, yeah. So for you, the comfort of having a car with you at all times means that it's parkable. It lets you go every place you ever want to go has accessibility for the car. You can drive it to a restaurant. You can drive it to a movie. You can drive it anywhere at all that you want to go. There's a place for that car to, to let you get there. The only places which are restricted are, again, places where there's no parking or no roads to get there. So there are some city centers, for example, in Europe where you cannot drive, and that's going to increase over time. That is a cost that has been borne by the world, by society, by the environment over a century in order to give you that level of accessibility. Let's not forget that had it been like go back in time a century ago and the ability for you to do those things with a car would have been restricted. That's why the first cars that were popular, like the Model T, were really off-road vehicles. They didn't have infrastructure for them, so they had to kind of cope with whatever was there. Mm -hmm. So we've managed to kind of rebuild the world just so that that car can be with you at all times. So the problem with your personal vehicle in the future, the micromobility vehicle in the future, is that it needs to be also supported by every road, parking, and access now to the extent that it is pocket size and you can take it with you like you might with a scooter so much the better but it's not to me automatic so now i want to say one thing about this owned versus on demand mm -hmm. the thing that feels great about owned is that yes you can use it around town but the, when i say 80 20 rule applies i think 80 percent of the trips are going to be taken by shared vehicle 20% will be taken by personal vehicle, but the money and the profits are going to follow that formula. So I think the economics of shared will be much more favorable. And actually, if you're making vehicles, shared vehicles will be a better business than owned vehicles. And I think they're actually going to bifurcate because the shared business will allow rapid iteration. It'll allow platforms to be built Whereas the home's vehicle, you're going to end up owning it for six, seven, eight years. You're going to own it like you do a bike. And then as a result, you're going to be owning a, a product that's obsoleted by the shared fleets within a matter of a month, possibly. But what does it mean to be obsoleted? Because, I mean, I think about this and you go, what sort of tech are we going to have on board that's going to be that materially that much better once the tech matures, like, you know, give it two, three years from now, not like right now, I, I hear your point, but two or three years from now, I feel like we get to a point in which the technology matures and you can buy the owned one. I mean, even now you can buy a Bird One for $1,300, $1,400 and that's as good as you're probably going to get for the next year or so on shared scooters. And I would look at that and say, versus a shared system, if you put it yourself on a subscription, say, for example, they came out with a subscription tomorrow for... I don't know, $80 a month or something like that, where you can take as many of these birds as you want around any city around the world. I still think for a lot of people, they just say, yeah, I'll just buy my own one and I'll use it. And then I'll use the bird when I need to, because it's a different job to be done. If we go back to jobs to be done here, 
I feel like they're just two different things. They're trying to solve for two different things. There's a commuter vehicle, and then there's like the, hey, I want to generally travel. And general travel, absolutely shared. I don't disagree. I think that's the best thing. You'll pay extra for the access. This is, again, going back to this discussion about whether the vehicle evolves into something else. And the problem is, maybe I'm thinking too far ahead, maybe none of this will happen, but my expectation for these vehicles is that they're not just going to be utility. Remember, the 50 cents a mile. They're not just about delivering people to A to B in time C. They're going to increasingly offer you services on top. So they're going to offer you things like movie discounts, and you'll see a platform on there for commerce, for social. So meet people, go to the cool parties, get discounts, exercise if it's an e-bike, for example. So gain points as you do you know, with miles, you're going to end up getting all these benefits for using the product. And in fact, a lot of those benefits will be like in view of you paying for it. So you'll say, oh, you know, if you go on this trip and you stop at Starbucks and return the scooter to a certain location, like your ride is for free. And then so people will begin to create new behaviors around these systems. I mean, that's the point of the entrepreneurs is to redefine the behaviors that people do with these things. And of course, that'll iterate so quickly and then they'll require cameras, it'll require more interesting positioning or data. I mean, I think the most interesting part is when these things have cameras on them and are mapping the city, are providing all kinds of I can't even imagine yet what will happen with, you know, every scooter having always on video. That capability will, right now, we just think about what, what is the data value of these zettabytes of data. But it's going to be much more interesting when they might end up being augmenting reality, providing interactions. I mean, let's not forget the killer job for the smartphone became social media, became Instagram, became influencing, became Snapchat, became all these other modalities of communication, which we had no, no way to envision in the beginning. So again, putting my platform hat on, I would say that the ability of that vehicle to then become a platform and start to change behaviors, that's going to evolve at such a rapid rate that that vehicle you have a home, it's just going to feel like it's a utility product. And then maybe that's, let me put it this way. If the market is only utility, I'm going to be out of it in a couple of years. (laughs) Forget it. I'm done. All of this stuff makes a lot of sense to me. So yesterday I went and spoke at a lunch or breakfast for Lime Scooters. And it was like for a business association here in New Zealand. And, you know, Lime had sponsored it. And they gave free limes. If you turned up on the Lime, you would get a free breakfast. And I'm like, okay, cool. But I can't buy that access from Lime. And if all of a sudden I could, and I was an advertiser, then all of a sudden I could see that being incredibly powerful. When we were at Uber, we didn't allow that to happen. We had like a very, very bad product that allowed people to like buy rides to their wedding, for example, and you could buy rides for other people to your wedding. But I can see that being a really powerful thing that you could unlock with a platform. But I'm just thinking purely from a a perspective that, you know, if I'm going to use a device for a commute, the cost I don't think is still going to be that much lower for example, if it's subsidized by ad dollars or whatever, versus just a, hey, I need a utility vehicle. It's going to be cheap for me to be able to go from here to here. And yes, you might not be as connected, for example, as you would, but I actually think a lot of that to default to the smartphone. You'll just have social platforms that will emerge. You think about what it would be like to have a social platform that is built on your movement 
but is tied to your smartphone rather than necessarily having it tied to the device. Yeah, that's a great point. I think, you know, if it's tied to the app, then, you know, Apple's going to make more money out of micromobility than anyone. Yeah. Or Google, perhaps. But yes, I think that my assumption here is that the vehicle matters. I think that being micro would also mean that it has an evolutionary path with its motor and battery, sort of the hardware side of it getting better, but also somehow there would be a compute aspect to it. A lot of these things are highly speculative, like especially if we get to augmented reality, if we have the ability to connect to the vehicle somehow symbiotically. One example quickly is that, you know, as I'm riding my e-bike right now, my watch is trying to estimate how much calories I've burned. But of course, it's assuming I'm on a regular bike. It doesn't know I'm on a new bike. <laughs> he is going very fast and his right. heart is not beating very fast. Yeah, you know? yeah, right. <laughs> totally, the calorie is way off. But here's the thing. I was chatting on Twitter about this and I said, but you know, my bike has a torque sensor. That torque sensor actually measures exactly how many calories I've put into the system because that's what exactly what torque is. Sure. And so if it could track and of course that sensor could then send that information to my watch but uh, you know imagine a future where uh, that's exactly the sort of improvement to the vehicle you would add and say hey now it's apple watch compatible it's going to tell you exactly how much energy you use and by the way you get points you get coupons you get all these other things based on how much input you have so we can create apis for energy we can put in apis for miles traveled and all these other things that would sort of allow people to engage more now this is going to take time and of all the things that we saw happen on platforms whether it's windows platforms google's platforms apple platforms all of the innovation that happened it happened with third parties really figuring it out yes it's not that google or apple did it so the only question i have is who's going to create the apps of micromobility these are layers of value added which are synchronized with the platform to that but basically inventing new things to do on top and that's where the moment of pivot in the industry would happen when a micromobility company becomes a platform company and says, hey, this is your chance to write apps for us now. So if that happens, again, it's completely impossible for us to envision what will happen and how many ideas will come out of that. The genie is out of the bottle at that point. So that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about micromobility. It's not the potential for it to be more efficient and more economical and and saving the environment. It's that the fuel to do those things in a huge scale will come from the platforms and the apps and the innovations that will occur. So that's my assumption there. I totally hear you. I was actually thinking a lot because I, I don't know if you've seen these videos of the scooter trains that have been emerging in LA. And there are some other cities as well with it, but you've got a lot of teenagers and they all get together and they hop on scooters and then they go around and roving, you know, like a large pack and they just ride around on the streets. And I've been like, that's really one of those emergent behaviors that you think is really fun. It's like a party, but you just happen to be on a party where you're all in a group. And then we talk about together. this. We have. Didn't I say that once you have people changing behaviors and you know you're winning, right? Yeah, completely. But the interesting thing for me is I cannot find out who organized those things. And to me, it's like, well, 
what is the coordination mechanisms that they're using to get everybody together in one place at one time? Because you think about it and you go, well, that would be the cool way to make Lime work. As you say, yo, we've got a discounted thing. And if you turn up, you're in the right area. We're all going to go roam around in a pack together and you're going to be at a party. I don't know, you know, what that social layer looks like. But I think about it as like, man, I want to go hang out with my mates and we go for a ride together. It's super fun, you know? That's how many ways of how social media started. I don't know if I want to highlight Facebook as the pioneer here, but there was certainly, you know, like MySpace or other media where, where people were figuring out, well, hey, if the users are generating content, how can we harness the community in the sense of, like you said, uh, being social to the extent that, you remember, I think in our conversation about behaviors, what did the car bring as a behavior mm-hmm. were things like cruising, dating, the drive-in and, movie know, theater. going out to <laughs> the drive-in movie theater, but then, you know, somehow you take your girl with you or your guy with you, whatever, you know, and have your, have your fun in the car. That was the thing. It was private space away from your family, and therefore it led to the entire you know, new normative behavior in, in at least in America. That is how young people uh, dated. I don't even know what they did before the car, frankly, because maybe, you know, you, you would go to a dance or something, but you took the bus. The point is that the mall and the cruising on the mall and all these other behaviors that are, you know, and I was, in my ride across Silicon Valley, you know, you see, of course, lots and lots of cars and you see just how, insular everyone is and how there isn't street life there isn't a space where people mingle because everybody's in their little metal box i think micro would have allow a lot more of this face-to-face a lot more of the body language and a lot more of the eye contact that people crave and yet still be moving right and mm-hmm. still going places and still like you said these uh, scooter trains thing is exactly what i'm so happy that's happening because i've been looking for something like that to point to so am i when i first saw that i was like yes this validates our thesis uh, yes, the one yes. thing though and if i may bring it back because we're kind of running out of time is it's just it's very interesting because i think your point earlier the cost per mile is not the thing and when i think about it i think this conversation that i'm still having with a lot of regulators and entrepreneurs that i'm talking to is they're like look we can bring the cost per mile down to negligible it's two to three cents per kilometer to own and operate these vehicles and yes it is but that's not the thing that's not why this is actually exciting this is exciting because the platformization of these things all of a sudden enable this i just thought of another way to think about it which is the cost of electricity when you pay your electric bill, sure, you know, you might think a bit about where it all goes. But on a day-to-day basis, you know, electricity enables so much in your life, in your house, in your work, and in, in everything you do, that the bill that you get, you, you don't look at it, you just pay it. And, you know, you're not aware at any moment, what is my cost per kilowatt hour, mm-hmm. right? There's, there's mm-hmm. Sometimes you can Fair. search this and say, well, huh. You know, or maybe in Australia it's less or more than it is in Europe or U.S. And all these people then start to maybe, what are you going to do, comparison shop for electricity? No way. The point about uh, electricity, maybe also I remember, because again, I'm old, but I remember especially my, my parents or my grandparents being obsessed about turning off the lights, making sure that, you know, they would even go in the dark because they felt that that was expensive. For them, light was expensive. Yeah, 
Totally. Life, they grew up with the notion, especially when you had candles, that it was extremely expensive and you're always minimizing how much light you're generating. And when you got it in as an electricity bill, they thought about it the same way. And even people would turn off the lights on their car because they thought they would save energy. You know, even though that's a minute amount <laughs> I'm of driving energy down the highway driving. with no lies, but I'm saving. Yeah, no, no. No, I mean, seriously. Yeah. And I, I heard about this. The French, particularly, and were kind of it was kind of a national mania to turn off your your headlights because it, they consume energy. And th- so the point is that by thinking about cost per mile, we're effectively not just thinking about this world as it was for communication. We're thinking about it as it was for electricity and costs there. And obsessing about minimization in those domains doesn't explain or doesn't allow us to really imagine what the benefits are. What are the benefits of having the lights on in the house Mm -hmm. when you're there? Of course, you want to turn them off if you're not there, of course. But life is so much richer as a result of having these enablers. And so micromobility, we need to appreciate it as an enabler, and then we have to work on business models that on top of it, that allow it to prosper and grow and grow and grow. I was saying this to an auto executive, you know, I know what your dream is, I said. Your dream isn't to be paid for the car. Your dream is to be paid when the person reaches their destination and transacts Mm -hmm. something. You want to be paid for enabling that transaction. Whether you're going to shopping, you're going to work, you want to be paid because the consumer transacted. And that is the dream everyone has. It's the dream of the car maker, but it's the dream of the phone maker. It's the dream of the network itself. If you're in communications, mm-hmm. is to say that's what the mobile operator wants. Okay, They hate the idea that they're a bit pipe. This has been kind of their dirty word of communications is, oh, we're just a dumb bit pipe. Yeah. We want to be paid for whatever happens at the end of the communication. So maybe we should coin a phrase, right? We should say transportation right now is not a bit pipe, but is an atom pipe. Atoms being, of course, you know, physical yeah. as opposed to electronic. So an atom pipe, right? We're, we're thinking about transport as moving atoms. And nobody wants to become an atom pipe, you shouldn't anyway. I think the problem is actually we haven't gotten to the realization that we don't want to be atom pipes. Right. We want to be other things above that. And so right now, at least everyone's obsessed with, hey, let's just be a better atom pipe. But that is not a worthy goal enough for me. Yeah, that's fair. There's the notion of, I remember in, you know, when they talked about it in the 50s and 60s, they were like, nuclear is going to come along and it's going to be too cheap to measure and what that enables. If I'm going to take anything away from this episode, it's simply just that what starts to happen when you get a 10x reduction in the cost per kilometer, because you think it's like the same as, oh yeah, we've re- reduced the cost of transport, but actually it's not. It's like it's a whole nother fundamental rethink, right? I don't say that the cost is zero. What I say is the marginal cost. So in other words, there will be a baseline cost and subscription, even phones and oh, we of do course. pay yeah, for no, communications. No, exactly. I, you, you have the same thing with phones. But it marginally, 
right? But yeah, exactly. It's the marginal cost becomes zero. And what actually gets enabled at that point, I think, is actually far more interesting. Right. If you're going to say, okay, well, let's assume micro cost me $50 a month and that's going to be my subscription cost. Yeah. Maybe I'll subscribe to network A or network B and they'll be in competition. But you don't want to be network A or B. Yeah, that's okay. You know, it's like being a, a mobile network operator and you're getting your $50 and you're obsessed about ARPU. But what the, became exciting within, you know, a matter of a decade is like, okay, there's much more on top of that. And that's why I keep using this phrase on top. Mm. So sure, I think today we're like the question of maybe amongst the Ubers and the Lyfts and, and maybe the birds and the limes is that, you know, who's going to be the Verizon and the AT&T and the Vodafones? But really, do you want to, is that all you want from life? I mean, that might be interesting. I used to work for one of these Verizon type companies, but those turn out to be, pretty dead-end businesses in the long term and i'm not saying in the short term it might be great but you know in the long term you got to be figuring out what goes on top and that's i think what this show is about i think this is what we should be and the whole article i wrote about the cost per mile is analogous to that saying don't obsess about it that eventually would pass to be a commodity move on and think about it in a new dimension not to ignore it, but just to think about what's next. I love it. I love it. On that note, we should end. Just give a really quick shout out. Micromobility.io, October 1st. Come check us. Uh, both Horace and I will be there. We'll have a blast. It'll be super fun. We've got great people coming. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's really coming together. It'll be an awesome crowd yeah. and an awesome audience and an awesome presenter roster. So please uh, come. Cool. 